You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. I'm Rod Judd, the Membership and Development Director at People for Bikes, and it's my privilege today to talk with Chris Kakalis, the CEO of Pivot Cycles. How are you, Chris? Good. How are you? Good, good. So uh, Chris has been many things to the industry over a career spanning three decades now, and his experience as a racer, a retailer, a frame builder, and a business leader gives him a, a fairly rare perspective I think we can all learn from today. So uh, with that, I'm going to get started with some questions for you, Chris. All right. Great. So you started as a BMX racer in high school and moved on to some of the earliest mountain bikes, right? How did it all begin for you as a rider and a bike shop employee? I started riding BMX when I was nine and also kind of became the shop drum at that time. So pretty much been involved or at or managing a bike store really all my life up until the start of Titus in the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, yeah, I, I raced BMX early 80s until 1987. I Well, I continued to race, but I discovered mountain bikes at that point. I came out to Arizona to go to ASU, and uh, the guys at the shops I, I started working at uh, were all mountain bikers and uh, got hooked instantly. Cool. But I started there as a mechanic, but had managed bike stops and service areas and have basically been involved in BMX and then started mountain bikes from, from early on. Right. And so when you started building those early those early frames, you know, what was different about what you were doing versus what was on the market in the mountain bike space at that time? Well, I was really intrigued by some of the early elevated chainstay bikes. So look, Richard Cunningham had Mantis and then he also designed the Nishiki Alien. And I, I had a picture of the Nishiki Alien hanging up in my dorm room in my first year of college. And I, I met a a gentleman who taught me how to braise frames and kind of had a little backyard business called Sun Eagle Bicycle Works. And we were building, we built elevated chainstay frames and in 1988, 1989 time frame. actually had a test in mountain bike action in 1988 alongside the several different mantises and the Nishiki alien. It's called Bikes of the Future. And it's pretty cool to be a part of that. But Although cool, I didn't know anything about welding aluminum. It was a steel bike, and the idea of elevated chainstays was super cool, but we really, I couldn't build a bike that was stiff enough at the time with thin steel tubes. That kind of moved into me playing around with more conventional frames and, and then the, the starting Titus. Right. So talk about those early years, uh, you know, in the 90s when you when you did found Titus. That was really a boom period for mountain biking, right, for the whole category. So talk about the environment at that point. It was kind of all over the board at the time. We were kind of transitioning in that the, the vast majority was still hardtails and there were some unique hardtail designs, but full suspension was starting to come about. And there was just all kinds of crazy designs going on. It's actually really how Titus was founded. Started uh, building prototype bikes for a guy named John Rader. He was the inventor of the threadless headset. And because he had just invented that, uh, and it was on, in the first year, about 80% of the bikes on showroom floors, he was a pretty big deal. I built those bikes for him, 
he wound up showing it around to several manufacturers and Univega wound up buying the bikes. I was in my, in my senior year at ASU and I, uh, I received a purchase order for 175 titanium full suspension frames from Univega. So that was kind of an interesting way to get going in, into the bike business and wound up graduating and with some investment from one of my uh, accounting professors at, at ASU and my friend who was the titanium welder at the time, his boss at his aerospace company also invested some money and we were off to the races building Univega shock blocks. At that time, the production or the, the brand manager at Univega wound up leaving to go work for AMP Research. And I was able to, I, I had become friends with him. I was able to meet Horst Leitner at that time. And so we started working on some of our own suspension bike designs using Horst's original AMP Research rear end and then moving on from there. So it was a pretty exciting time because everything was experimental, but there was also huge gains to be made. And if you did it right, you had something truly special. And that Univega project also allowed us to really move into a lot of OEM manufacturing. So we did bikes for a lot of different manufacturers from, I mean, real bikes, suspension bike prototypes for Diamondback, did things, custom road frames for Le Mans. A lot of things in the early years that was really exciting. What a fascinating way to graduate. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So fast forward a little to Pivot. You know, what, what was the concept behind Pivot? Why did you decide to make that transition from Titus and, and start a new company? Well, in the, I think it was 2000, we were seeing changes at Titus in the world of materials. Mainly composites were starting to come in. And at the time, I made a business decision. Uh, we had an offer to merge Titus with Composites Company, and I took that option. At the time, I could say, or five years after that, when I left Titus, that, that was a bad business decision. But looking back at it now and where Pivot is today, it worked out just fine. But um, I wound up leaving, selling the rest of my ownership in Titus in 2006 and was not super happy about that. So you know, I was kind of a man on a mission and uh, was not done designing bikes and building bikes. And it was pretty awesome looking back on it, having the, uh, had the opportunity to really from bootstrapping with credit cards out of college to being able to start with a fresh slate and do something completely different with Pivot. And so business plan ground up of looking back at all the mistakes or the directions I had taken because of financial concerns of how we would build a bike company from the start, a cutting edge bike brand that didn't have to maybe go cut corners or take certain paths based on financial need at the time. So that's, we, we launched Pivot in 2007 with two models and really a big plan behind us, which we executed on pretty well, considering I think it was about October of 2007 that all the banks collapsed. And, and it was it was really an interesting time in the in the world and uh, and in the bicycle industry on the whole. Yeah, looking looking at what you've built there, you know, in the last decade, and specifically the employee roster, you know, there's an impressive list of experience there. Talk a little about your colleagues and and what you consider to be the key elements that have have got you to where you are from where you were. Yeah, that I would say that's probably the biggest reason behind where we're at today and the success. Back in the Titus days, I couldn't always hire the people I wanted to or oftentimes afford to keep key people that, that wanted to grow with us. And from the very start with Pivot, that was employee retention and finding the best people and building a team and a family that was excited to be here and that 
we would have all the benefits of be a bike company that they could grow with and have a career at. And, and finding the right people is everything. We often take a long time to make hiring decisions so that we can make sure that we get the right people that can help take pivot to the next level and also fit well within our team. And then everybody's a really driven group. So it's, we like to have fun here, but at the same time, a lot of our key people are really A-tight and they thrive on what we're doing in the fast-paced environment and wanting pivot to succeed. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, you're very well respected as a, as a business person and a designer and an engineer, but in recent years, I've seen you increasingly become involved in supply chain management. Tell us a little about what suppliers need to do to be successful importers these days, and how are those aspects of the business changing? Yeah, that part of the business is absolutely crazy. I started building bikes because I loved bikes. I never thought I'd be involved in a global logistics business, but that's really what this has become in a lot of ways. It doesn't matter how awesome our bikes are if we can't supply it. And the, it's a constant challenge in an area that we focus on as a, as a company. We've invested really heavily in this area, setting up our office in Germany. We have both assembly and sales there, and then an office in Taiwan, which really helps with our QC and our logistics around other parts of the world. We, we basically need to manage the entire process and be as close to our customers as possible. And we're really one of the only true assembly factories in the U.S. as well. This, it allows us to be a lot more flexible, but it also takes a much larger team to manage every nut and bolt that goes into a bike. Sure. Do you have any comments uh, on specifically on the, the current tariff issues we're seeing? Oh, that's uh, that's a huge can of worms. I think that's been a major disruptor this year, not just for Pivot, but for the entire sport. Even companies that were not manufacturing in, in China have really felt the crunch because of, there's been this mass exodus to quickly move production elsewhere. And unfortunately, there are relatively few suppliers outside of China. So that means that everyone's fighting over a smaller group of resources, and it's just insufficient to handle what the bicycle business needs. I think this will smooth out, but in the short term, it's really created increased costs and big delays for everyone. Unfortunately, it also makes U.S. manufacturing more difficult. We want to grow manufacturing and assembly in the U.S., but the tariffs hit certain parts so hard that it's actually more cost-effective to assemble bikes in other countries. If you're not growing your assembly here, then we're not going to be able to grow manufacturing to support it in the U.S. As assembly grows and hits higher volumes, then it makes a lot of sense for the supporting businesses to also invest so that they can supply better. In the U.S., it might start with something as simple as wheel assembly, but then move to rim extrusions and so on. When it comes to frames, we can really begin to move more final machining back and then painting and possibly some frame production, but it really needs to happen in a step-by-step -step process that's incentivized in a way that makes U.S. manufacturing more competitive. Right now, the tariffs are affecting China's economy, but they're also creating restrictions on the ability to be competitive with U.S. manufacturing. So I, I really hope that this tariff thing doesn't continue on and that the focus really becomes back to growing manufacturing in America and not so much the trade imbalance or what we're doing to China's economy as, as a result of, of this trade war. Excellent. Looking really big picture now, Chris, do you have any other recommendations that could make the entire industry better? Well, it's something I'm, I constantly hound our suppliers on. It's really related to how we enable the dealers to get maximum value out of the product on their floors. Over the last seven or eight years, there's really been this race to launch products earlier and earlier. In the old days when 
you know, print mag- media magazines dominated, we would all hold our global trade shows at the end of September, or early October, when the dealer selling season was essentially over. Everyone would come to the shows and show their new stuff. There was excitement on supplier and the dealer end of the spectrum. Fox, Shimano, Tram, everyone would show their new stuff at the fall trade show. So it allowed dealers to place orders in that window for delivery into the fall and spring and really allow for a full selling season. Now it's just all over the board. A lot of component manufacturers use Sea Otter to launch new products that will really not be available until fall. And if you look at something like, you know, you've just come into April, 2019 product is shipping. And now everybody comes to Sea Otter at the second or third week of April and then gets shown 2020's new product. When in a lot of cases, 2019 is still on the water and half the country might still be under snow. That really creates a big problem combined with the fact that web and social media is so immediate that there's no delay in that information flowing throughout the world. And it just devalues the the product that's on the showroom floor. I think as an industry and and mostly on the major component supplier side, we need to align launches of new product with actual delivery to the market so that timing for the dealer can really fall sometime between October and February. That would give the dealers full summer season of selling at full price. And I mean, we're not going to move when summer ends and when it begins. And there's always this race to beat somebody. But really, we're just beating up on each other when we do this. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marsh and McClellan Agency, a leader in bicycle industry insurance. With MMA, you'll find the peace of mind that comes from knowing you have the insurance protection you need. MMA serves three primary segments of the bike insurance industry, retail bike shops, bicycle product suppliers and manufacturers, and bike trail builders. MMA provides coverage that is uniquely tailored to your risks, led by Scott Chapin, an agent who knows the bicycling world and business. Find out more at marshmma.com. You know, let's talk about the dealers. You know, in your in your years of working with retailers, who are or were the most impressive retailers that you've engaged with? And, you know, for those folks, was there a, a common thread that made them great? Well, I've got a couple examples. Uh, this might come as a bit of a surprise, but Alan Goldsmith at Supergo taught me a lot about marketing, branding, and consumer purchasing habits early on at Titus. In the early days of Titus, we briefly had a, that what was supposed to be an in-store-only relationship with them, which they then violated, and we stopped selling to them, but still remained friends with Alan afterwards, and he certainly knew how to be successful in the bicycle business. His mail-order business at the time was incredibly successful, but it was really the way he ran his stores that was most impressive. And today with Pivot, I would say that shops like JRA near Boston, Psychopath in Portland, Golden Bike Shop, and Sports Garage in Colorado are all incredible examples of dialed-in store demo programs and providing the best levels of customer experience and a cool vibe and really focusing on high-end brands. And it seems to be a, a common thread with all of our top dealers is the ability to, to run an awesome demo program and be a, a place that you want to be in. Sometimes it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, but when you walk in the store, you just know, and it's a place that you feel welcome and want to be at. And then for some larger dealers, it's even more of a balancing act, like Elevation in Colorado, 
Newberry Park Bike Shop in California. They do an excellent job of balancing that high-end customer service experience while also having the bigger anchor brands in their store and being successful across a much wider range of customer price points and categories. We, we actually have a pretty substantial list of dealers that do it right. So these are just a few good examples of people that are just really awesome at providing that customer experience. Excellent. What would you like to see change in the retail landscape? You know, what would you like to, to see change for retailers? There's still a lot of retailers that are just in general, highly resistant to change. Um, it's a really difficult time for retailers if they think that they can just keep doing business the same way and customers will continue to come in their doors. We all know that all retailers in just about every industry have lost a portion of their business to online sales. The best retailers adapt and make their shop a place that customers want to be a part of, but they also need to make sure that customers are being reached in the way that we've all become accustomed to shopping. I think it's super important that dealers treat their website and their social media presence the way that they initially approach their investment in opening up their store. Pretty much every customer looks online first, but not necessarily just to shop for price. I like to buy at the store, but I really prefer to make sure the store has the product in stock before I make a trip. Anything that retailers can do to engage the customer on their website and draw them in to be a part of their experience through social channels will, I think, will drive business to the store. They do not have to sell online, but having inventory available to view and updating their websites with new images and giving the customers a good reason to look on the site and visit the store is really important. The, the, the best retailers have really adopted to this well. Switching back to uh, to talking about Pivot a little more, Pivot launched you know five new bikes this year, which is impressive. Talk a little bit about the future of the company. You know what are the categories and the audiences that you're you're most interested in, Chris? We're really an engineering and product driven company first, and so it's always important for me and and the rest of us to lead with cutting edge products that improve the rider's experience on the bike. It doesn't necessarily fall into a specific category. We don't really want to limit ourselves in that way. So if we feel we can make a product better and it's something that we're excited about and our customers are excited about, then then we'll continue to pursue it. We consider our customers that we always want to focus on the genuine rider that really seeks out and appreciates the best products in each category, as well as the attention to detail that we put into our bikes. Right now, we're in the process of building a new facility that we should be moving into around May of next year. Will be about three times the size of our current facility, and it's really going to allow us to do more hop in-house and give us the room we need to grow everything. And uh, as things are getting a bit tight right now in our current home, excellent. As you mentioned at the at the beginning, you really began your career in the industry straight out of college. You know, for some of the younger folks uh, looking to build a, a lifelong career in the industry, do you have any tips for you know bike shop staff that would like to make a, a transition to the supply side or maybe open their own bike company one day? That's a big question. Uh, for me, I've always just never really been satisfied with what's out there. And in those early years of BMX, I broke a lot of parts. And in the early years of mountain bikes, it was kind of wide open as well. And a lot of the same issues occurred again that had been resolved in the BMX world. And I had an idea and at some point, whether I could make it myself or have somebody else make it, I just kind of step-by-step pursued having the parts that I wanted to ride made. And uh, I see that a lot in people coming up that have that same perseverance and have an idea. And it's obviously a bit, the bicycle industry is a bit different now than it was back then. And the way 
people go about it and the way they launch their brands. But I think the one thing that doesn't change is having a strong passion and that kind of unwavering belief in what you're doing. I also think a good business mindset is important as well. I wound up graduating from ASU with an accounting degree uh, after three and a half years in engineering. And that that business side of things has really served me well. Who are your mentors, Chris? Who do you admire in and outside of the bike industry? Well, in the bicycle industry, I admire a lot of different people, but really anyone who's started a grow- and grown a business successfully in the bicycle industry. And I've been in it long enough and uh, I, I grew up in Chicago, so I really got to see the, the height of Schwinn and the failure of Schwinn and really what came out of that and the growth of GT and again, the decline of GT or how that business changed, but in kind of the modern era to, and from my early years, people like Horst Leitner, Steve Flagg at QBP, and then, you know, looking at people like Mike Sinyard and, and Bob Marchavikas at Specialized that have been in the industry and started something from, from the beginning much as I have. And then also seeing on the Asian supplier end, some of the people that I dealt with in the first time I'd ever been over to Taiwan have grown incredibly large businesses over the years. And it's always good to sit down with them and listen to what works and what doesn't work and take their advice. Outside the industry, I've got a couple of close friends that have been involved in the motorcycle industry and the two people that I go to advice for most, yeah, continue to be one of them actually just passed away recently. My friend Gary Myers, he was the, uh, he owned Faye Myers Motorsports up in Denver and was also uh, a 1999 mountain bike cross country world champion. He was the first person to ever win a world mountain bike world championship on a full suspension bike, an XC mountain bike world championship. He ran the largest Honda dealership in the, in the United States for many years and in my early years really helped direct me in what to do and what not to do as the business crew. So it's it's super important to have to both both have people in your industry and outside the industry that you can lean on and, and kind of help you see through the things that you think that would that no nobody maybe has ever been through before, but in business lots of people have been through it before and, and there's always somebody out there that can kind of help you see the forest through the trees if you you're willing to listen. Absolutely. There's a lot we can learn from uh, from non-endemics. Chris, if you weren't building bikes, what you what would you be doing today? I'd probably be in the motorcycle or car industry. I generally like things with wheels. Excellent. Um, okay, so let's let's take a once again a big picture view and let's jump to what's next for the industry. Where do you see the e-bike movement headed? Oh, I think it's going to be. I mean, it's big now, obviously, but. I, I think we're actually just at the beginning of it and really what an e-bike could be because right now we've in the U.S. we've designated three classes of e-bikes, but I think what an e-bike is is going to get segmented even further. You're starting to see smaller motor systems for road bikes, better commuter-specific systems, and it, we're just at the cusp of battery technology and the possibilities are quite endless. It's it, really seems a lot like the early days of mountain biking when you look at what the potential is and that's so many people have kind of gone in in different directions and it is a little different in that there's investment to make batteries in an e-bike motor are often driven by the some of the largest companies but also some of the innovation that's come comes from a lot of the smaller companies and it's it's pretty neat to see what's going on with that. 
where the potential is in the future. But I think it is going to be a big segment of what's going on in the U.S. and both mountain bike and road and commuter and a, and a way to just make cycling more enjoyable for a much wider range of users. So you see a, an important role for the bike industry in you know, urban mobility, urban commuting, sort of a, an expansion of the bike technology into sort of mainstream transport? Absolutely. I also think it's a great opportunity for the bike retailers. Not, you know, everyone's like, oh, add a segment, grow your business. I have a little bit of a different perspective on that. And that as certain things in the bicycle industry become commoditized and people become more familiar, there's certain things that are just going to be easier and people are going to lose that business to online lowest price. But the entire e-bike opportunity and, and even a lot of the things we're doing with electronics and full suspension bike where it's not necessarily an e-bike, but the technology that we're putting out there is more complicated. It requires training service, the ability to explain it to a customer simply and make them feel comfortable about what, what they're doing. And although cars are sold online and motorcycles are occasionally sold on, online, you look at those vehicles and they are handled through dealerships and retailers. And because they're products that really require that back-end service. And so I believe just continuing on the path of having products that make cycling better for customers also is going to come with a technology part of it that also requires more service, more explanation. And the bike shops really have an opportunity to own that and be the, the best examples of customer service in those areas. Excellent. You know, taking it one step up and talking about the entire industry once again, and I mean suppliers, manufacturers, associations like People for Bikes, media, what, what can we do to broaden participation with the American public and really make bicycling a better experience for people? What, what do we need to do? You know, Pivot is just a small part of, of the industry and we're at a very small segment, but regardless of what the company is or what the shop is, what they do in the sport and the industry, I think we can all contribute to it and do our part. You know, with Pivot, we invest pretty heavily in NICA and IMBA. And then I've been involved with some thing, campaigns and, and help to get e-bikes legal with Bikes Belong here in Arizona. So it's not always just a donation of money, but of time and participation. And most people, I don't think, realize what it takes to even maintain the access that we already have today, much less grow the, the opportunities that are out there. And from your last question with e-bikes, that always tends to be a hot button with trail access and what that means. And it is, we don't want to just sell products without a place to use them. And that has happened in the motorsports industry where there's a lot of places where there was a dirt bike boom and millions of dirt bikes were sold. And, and then slowly but surely, and not even that slowly, those places went away and that market just shrunk considerably. And we have an opportunity to not have that happen to our sport and industry, but it takes shops being involved and companies at any level being involved in local trail adoption and maintenance organizations like Trips for Kids, every little bit helps. Your local racing organization, basically getting more people involved and having them support the sport. You know, I, I always use Nike as an example. These kids are, they're the future of not only mountain biking, they're the future people that will be running the country and the heads of businesses and the heads of governments and managing our parks 
And if we bring a whole generation of people up that think cycling is cool, it's going to build upon itself. And so that's why I, I think it takes everyone at every level that if you're in the business, in the sport, you should be doing something to support and grow it. And a lot of those things can have uh, positive repercussions across not just the bicycle industry, but just society as a whole. It's amazing taking a kid that might not have much and getting them involved in a sport like mountain biking through NICA and supporting them from a point at the beginning of the season where they can't even finish a lap on a race course to within year two being a competent racer that their entire outlook on themselves and their future is completely different from what you started with. And if they just gave up the bike at that point, you've made a positive impact on their personal self-worth and their future and basically where we can go as a society. I mean, it's, that gets a little bit big, but I'm pretty excited about those type of programs that grow kids in the sport. And those are some of the most rewarding experiences uh, we can have as professionals in the industry as well. I thoroughly agree with that, Chris. Chris, down to just closing thoughts. Is there anything that you've been wanting to get off your chest for the last 30 years? <laughs> Feel free to uh, to make any comments you'd like. Nothing really off my chest, but you know, it's there's always seems to be a, a push and pull between the bike brands and the retailers. And I guess every brand handles their retailer base a little bit differently in the way they work with them. But from the very get-go, from my start, I've always worked in shops and Titus and Pivot are retailer-focused businesses. We support the IBD and I truly appreciate when a retailer understands our commitment to them and treats that relationship in a reciprocal manner. We basically built our entire business around selling through them. and Everything we do and discuss internally has that in mind. And our best partners understand this. And with them, it feels more like they're a part of the family than someone we're just selling to. The long-term relationships matter, and we really just want to continue to support the best practices uh, required to make sure that our retailers remain healthy as the sport evolves. I kind of laugh internally a little bit when I see everybody, even at industry functions, talk about how we all need to sell online, how we need to push consumer direct, that every business should focus on this and we need retailers and people like to shop at bike shops and they like to shop at places like REI as well. And if, if we take kind of the best practices that are out there and basically make stores that people are want to be a part of and enjoy going to, it's going to be more about the experience and less about the price. There's always people that are going to want to shop on price and that's not necessarily the people that the IBD level is going to cater to. It's going to be enthusiasts. And if we do our job with IMBA and NICA and Bikes Belong and supporting the bicycle industry, we can we can continue to have a, a healthy retailer base that really caters to, to the right level of consumer. Excellent. Chris Carlos, thank you very much for your time today. Please keep doing what you're doing. The industry needs you, and uh, we fully appreciate your uh, you bringing your expertise and open thoughts to uh, this interview. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and our member benefits, please join us at nbda.com. dot